Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on him and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So a couple of years ago, I went to the store on or uh, near Thanksgiving. I won't mention the name of the store, but uh, after uh, the, the store is going out of business and after telling you the story, uh, I don't think you'll be surprised at why it's going out of business. But I had a pretty good coupon. Uh, if you spend $10, you get $10 off. I mean, how can you beat that? It's a great deal. You buy something for $10 and it's free. But in small print, it said excludes bonus buys, super buys, incredible values, yellow and black dot clearance, clearance center, etc. And then it lists a number of brands that it excludes. It excludes Nike, Columbia, Ralph Lauren, Polo, etc., etc., and I'm looking through the store and I can't find anything that's either not some super incredible value or that isn't one of these brands. But then I come to a realization. Under Armour wasn't listed on the coupon. So I'm thinking, great, I found something that I could use. I like Under Armour clothing. And so I pick out some clothes and then I get to I wait in line, get to the front of the register. And the lady says, sorry, Under Armour is excluded from this coupon. But it's not on the list. I went through every single item in this whole store, and this wasn't on the list. Basically, it was a wonderful coupon that you couldn't use on anything. In the passage that we're looking at today, the lawyer who comes to Jesus, he had good theology, he had a good understanding of the law, but he's trying to make exclusions uh, for the law in order to justify himself. And in doing, he kind of nullifies or does away with the heart behind the law that God commanded. So the lawyer comes to Jesus and puts him to the task and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus turns the tables and asks him a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The man says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that was a really good answer. This was the same answer that some other rabbis would give. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 to 31, Jesus himself describes the sum of the law in the exact same way that this man does. As love of God and love of neighbor. That's the encapsulation of what the law is all about. And so basically Jesus says, you're right. Go do this and live. At this point, we should pause for a second. Is Jesus saying that we're saved by works? I mean, I I thought we were saved by trusting in Jesus by faith. But I don't think there's a contradiction here. See, loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, these are expressions of faith. I mean, who could say, okay, I have faith in God, I have faith in Jesus, but I don't love Him and I don't love my neighbor it's a contradiction if we have faith in jesus we will love him and we will love those around us sometimes we think about faith we think about it as simply accepting facts as being true but faith is living and active and requires that we give ourselves to god but that's just an aside so getting back to the story the lawyer seems to think that he has the loving god part down pretty well so he moves on to the neighbor part and the text tells us he was trying to justify himself probably indicating that he was looking for some kind of confirmation that he's on the right path so he asked jesus and who is my neighbor see he's looking for exclusions Who do I have to love and who can I exclude? There was a semi-popular viewpoint within Judaism uh, that basically said that you were called to love God's people and only God's people. The Qumran community, which was kind of the separatist Jewish community, uh, put it even more harshly. One writer from the Qumran community said, If you do good, know to whom you do it. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give it to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, for by means of it they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. These were some of the ideas that were floating around during this time frame. So when the lawyer asked this question, maybe he expected Jesus to answer, other Jews, they're the ones that you need to love. You don't need to worry about other uh, people from other uh, regions. You don't need to worry about Samaritans. If you love God's people, then you'll be just fine. But that's not Jesus' response. Instead, he tells them, this parable he says that a man was going down from jerusalem to jericho and he fell among robbers now this was a very common thing that uh, might happen because jerusalem was 2500 feet above sea level and jericho was 800 feet below sea level and so the journey down from jerusalem to jericho was kind of an arduous journey and there were uh 
bandits that could hide in the ravines and on the mountains as it would go through the, the valleys and the ravines to get down to Jericho. And so these robbers see this man and they come and they strip him, take his clothes because clothes were really expensive during that time frame. They beat him and they left him for dead. Then the text tells us that a priest was going down that road by chance or by coincidence. Now, as uh, someone reads this or hears this story, we might think to ourselves, okay, God has orchestrated salvation for this man. The priest, God's servant, is now coming, and surely God's priest will help this man who is in distress. We know that this priest was coming down the road indicating that he was leaving Jerusalem. He had already fulfilled his priestly duties. He had no uh, excuse in that regard. He wasn't trying to keep himself ceremonially clean because of his duties in Jerusalem. He was leaving Jerusalem. And he had no good excuse not to help this man. But he passed by on the other side, not wanting to be contaminated by him or bothered by him. Then a Levite passes by. Now a Levite was someone who was not a priest, but who assisted the priests in their work. And his response is exactly the same. He passes by on the other side. But then a Samaritan passed by. The Jewish people had a long history with the Samaritans. Although the treatment of Samaritans varied somewhat, in general, Samaritans were greatly looked down upon by the Jewish people. There, were some, there was some animosity between the two groups. And this goes back to around 677 B.C. when Esradon, king of Assyria, brought people from Babylon and other nations to settle into the northern kingdom of Israel. Now these people settled in the land with those Jews who still remained there. And they became sort of Jewish. When the Jews and the Assyrians came together, the result was this sort of mixed between Judaism and other foreign religions. So they're kind of Jewish half-breeds. And uh, later, when the Jews were going to rebuild the temple that was destroyed, the Samaritans offered to help, and they were told, no. The Jews said, no, we don't need your help. We don't want you to help. And so as a result, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, where they subsequently believed uh, that was the place where true worship should happen. And as a result, there was kind of a hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans didn't really have a home. They weren't fully Jewish. They weren't fully pagan. And in general, Jews would try to avoid Samaritans. We talk about this parable as parable of good Samaritan. But in the ancient world, uh, ancient Jew might ask, is there such a thing as a good Samaritan? I mean, how is it possible that a Samaritan could actually be good? But he's the one who comes to the injured man's aid. And look at what he does for the injured man. He binds up his wounds and he pours oil and water on them. Or oil and wine on them. The oil would help soothe the wound and the wine would help disinfect the wound. He takes the injured man and puts him on his own animal, on his own probably donkey. And what this probably indicates is that now the Samaritan must walk this journey, which was potentially uh, a number of miles to the inn 
himself. He can no longer ride on the animal. When he gets to the inn, he doesn't simply leave him there, but he takes care of him overnight. And in the morning when he must go, he gives the innkeeper two denarius. This was equivalent to about two days' wages, and it would have been enough for the man to stay at the inn for probably about 24 days. Then he says to the innkeeper, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He's emphatic that I'm the one who's going to foot the bill. This man has nothing. Don't try to exact it from him. I'm going to pay for it. So the Samaritan helps this injured man at great cost to himself. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? The lawyer refuses to even mention the Samaritan, however. He simply says, the one who showed mercy. So what is Jesus trying to teach the lawyer in this parable? And what in turn is he trying to teach us? I think there's two primary lessons that we can learn from this passage. The first is that Jesus is trying to teach this lawyer that there are no exceptions in the call to love your neighbor. God calls us to love all who are in need. Note in the text that we don't know anything about this man who's injured. We don't know if he's Jewish, a Samaritan, a pagan, a tax collector, a priest, a Levite. Nothing. And I think that's intentional. Because it's kind of irrelevant. There's only one thing in this passage uh, that we need to know about this man and that he's in need. The lawyer begins by asking the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response seems to essentially be, your neighbor is anyone who's in need. That's the only thing we need to know, is the person who's in need. So for all of us looking at this passage, maybe we need to ask ourselves, who in my life, in my life am I failing to love? Who are the people in my life who I would... Say to myself, well, he or she doesn't deserve my love. Who are the people in my life whose situations are so messy and difficult that we'd rather just keep on walking? We'd rather not get our hands dirty. This passage shows us that our neighbor is anyone who's in need. Yet I think that Jesus wants to teach this lawyer something much deeper than that. Because to understand this first lesson, that a neighbor is anyone who is in need, wouldn't require the Samaritan. It wouldn't require the religious leaders and the Samaritans. Jesus could have just said, one person passed by, another person passed by, a third person decided to help, and made his point. Yet Jesus highlights the type of person that chooses to help or chooses to not help. The religious leaders, the religious authorities, the priest, the Levite, they refuse to help. But the spiritual half-breed, the one with the mixed-up theology, he's the one who does the right thing. And I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to this lawyer or scribe is knowing the law is not enough. The lawyer gave the right answers. He summed up the law correctly. Yet he failed to keep it. Here's the point. Good theology doesn't fix a broken heart. Good theology doesn't fix a broken heart. 
Knowing the right things to do is not enough. The Apostle Paul explains this in the book of Romans. Romans 2 verses 12 to 16 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's not primarily about knowing. It's about doing. The Jewish religious leaders had a tendency to say, we have the law. We're better than those pagan nations who don't have the law or don't understand it like we do. And Jesus is like, even a Samaritan can be pleasing to God. Even someone who has a mixed up theology and doesn't have it together, even he can be pleasing to God. But how often is it? How, e- how often does it happen? How easy is it for us to fall into this trap of knowing the right thing to do, but not putting into practice? Hearing, but not applying. Some researchers named Darley and Batson did a study at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary in 1973. And what they did was they told a group of theology students that they had to go across campus uh, to deliver a sermon on the topic of the Good Samaritan. Uh, this was a subset of the group. And as part of the research, some of these students were told that they were late and they needed to hurry up. And so they're headed to the other building where they're going to give the speech on the Good Samaritan. And meanwhile, the researchers planted an actor on the way that they would go to get to this other building. And the actor pretended like he was in great need. He was coughing, visibly suffering. I don't know, maybe hunched over, laying on the ground. And what they found was that 90% of these late students who were going to preach on the Good Samaritan ignored this person who was in need. The study reported, indeed, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried away. That's the difference between knowing and doing. Knowing is not enough. In 2014, there was a study that was conducted by Dr. Kirk Gray from UNC Chapel Hill. And he analyzed the Facebook page Save Darfur, uh, which has more than 1.17 million members. And uh, they weren't able to analyze all a million plus members, but they analyzed the first 100,000 of them. And what they found was that of the people who liked the page, 99% 99.8% of those who liked the page had never donated to the cause. And 72% had not recruited anyone else in their social media circles to like the cause. So if we go on Facebook, we might see something that we that we agree with or something that 
interests us and we press the like button. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll do something. It means we agree with it or support it in principle. And I think there's a danger that we could transfer that over into our spiritual lives. So we think about the two greatest commandments. Loving God, loving people. We're like, yep, like that. That's what the lawyer did. He liked the law. He understood the core of the law, but it wasn't a part of who he was. We like the idea, but we don't like to do it. Good theology doesn't fix a broken heart. If your heart is broken, liking some good things is not going to fix it. So there may be some of us here who know the right answers that have good theology we know the teachings of jesus and we like them but our hearts are far from god we've never entrusted our lives to christ by faith there may be others who are believers and yet there's areas of our life where we've failed to obey god maybe we've started to make exceptions in our lives yes god wants me to love people but surely he can't mean so and so no matter where we're coming from today. I don't think the answer is just to try harder. I mean, sometimes we need to give more diligence to something, but I don't think that's the full answer. It's not just to try harder. The answer is that we need to experience God's love, God's grace in our hearts. For those who are not believers, you can come to know God today. You can invite Him into your life today by faith, and He will come and live inside of you and change you from the inside out. And for those of us who are believers, we need to run to the gospel, run to the fact of what God has done for us, and we need to be obedient to God's Spirit that He's placed inside of us to guide us. In a sermon about living a life pleasing to God, Rick Warren told a story about a uh, lady named Liz Curtis Higgs. And uh, she was one of the best-known disc jockeys in America. You might call her a shock jock. And she lived a really wild lifestyle. Um, to kind of explain where she was at, she uh, would do uh, the PM show and Howard Stern would do the AM show. And uh, one day... Howard Stern told Liz, you know, you really need to clean up your act. Now, if Howard Stern is telling her that she needs to clean up her act, you can only imagine how vulgar and how offensive the stuff that she is saying was. And uh, Liz Curtis Higgs had been hurt by uh, many men, and she came to kind of hate men. And uh, she'd been just hurt and broken so many times. And you might call her a militant feminist. She just wanted nothing to do with men, uh, just hated men. But she had a Christian friend, girlfriend, who invited her to church. And uh, each time she said no. But finally she's like, okay, I'll go to church, but only one time. And uh, when she went to church with her friend that week, the pastor just happened to be preaching upon uh, marriage. And, and the pastor said, wives, submit to your husbands. 
not exactly what she was wanting to, wanting to hear. So she started to get a little angry. Blood started to boil a little bit. But she continued to listen, and then the pastor got to the second part of the verse. And he says, Husbands, you sacrifice yourself. You give yourself for your wives, just as Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the church and died for her. Pastor said, Who is asked to give their life up? Husband. When Liz heard that part, she leaned over to her friend and said with a little cynicism, I'd gladly give myself to any man if I knew he would die for me. Her friend leaned over and said, Liz, there is a man who loved you enough to die for you. His name is Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves you. It wasn't long after that that Liz let down all the barriers to her heart. And she surrendered her life to God. And now she's a well-known Christian author and speaker. See, when we get a glimpse of the love that God has for us, it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. It makes us people who are able to love God and to love others. Because the truth is, we were the injured man on the way to Jerusalem. Beaten, robbed, left for dead by the world. And Jesus came and rescued us. He bound up our wounds, put oil and wine upon them and healed us. Because of that, we're made new and we can love others with the same kind of love that God showed for us. Good theology doesn't fix a broken heart. But Jesus can fix any heart that's broken. He can fix the most unrepentant, hard-hearted person and change them and make them new.